So you remember the last line of that song? He shall come again. Praise the King. Now when I say those words, he shall come again, when you sing those words, he shall come again, what kind of thoughts fill your mind? If, if you're like most American evangelicals, what fills your mind are thoughts about, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what the events surrounding the return are going to involve. Now, if you don't believe me that that's the typical American evangelical response to He will come again, you need to realize that books on that theme have been sold and bought by the hundreds of millions. See if this storyline is familiar. The world is going along as it is now when one day hundreds of millions of people mysteriously disappear out of airplanes, cars, homes, schools. The world is in utter chaos. People who've lost friends, family, loved ones have no idea what has happened. Are they dead? Have aliens taken them? Were they being punished by God? Or, the world asks, are we the ones that are being punished by being left behind? There are all kinds of theories that the world is processing. One of those is that, you know, there were Christians alive, some of whom said this was going to happen. They also said it was going to happen at the beginning of seven years of great tribulation and that an antichrist was going to be a world leader and come to power. But if there are some alive now, after all these Christians are gone, and they live worthy lives, then Christ will accept them again when he comes back. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's the summary of the Left Behind series. 16 books selling over 80 million copies worldwide. It seems that we just can't resist reading the Bible with a newspaper on our lap and looking for ways that what this says here in this passage is that which is happening now in our world. There's a problem with that. Neither Paul nor Jesus taught us to think that way about the return of Christ. The other problem it creates is insecurity in so many Christians' lives. Research clearly reveals that it is one of the greatest causes of anxiety among believers. Not among the world, they don't care. Among believers, whether or not they're going to miss the rapture and be left behind. 
and they're worried about whether they've lived well enough, whether they've believed deeply enough. And oh, by the way, this is exactly the problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul taught on the return of Christ as the hope of Christians when he planted the church in Thessalonica, which is northeastern Greece. After Paul left, actually after he was run out of town, some false teachers came in and they told the Thessalonians that God has specifically told them when the end of the world was going to occur. Then these false teachers looked at all the suffering and persecution the Thessalonians were experiencing, and they were experiencing a lot. And these false teachers said, the reason why you're experiencing persecution and the reason why you're experiencing suffering is because you're not living worthy lives. By the way, have you ever thought that? I sure have. When hardship comes, it must be discipline. I must not be living the way I should. So they were feeling that already. The false teachers emphasized it and said, since we're the ones that God has given special revelation to about when the end of the world is going to occur, if you really want to be safe, you need to follow us, not Paul. And the Thessalonians were confused. They were panicked. They were discouraged. They were anxious. And they were insecure. So Paul, as he prepares to close the letter, wants to fill the Thessalonians, and just as importantly, wants to fill our hearts who know Christ with hope. If you know Christ, there is nothing to fear concerning the return of Christ and everything to anticipate. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word and follow along as I read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that means whether we're alive or dead, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you 
are doing. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to look forward to the day as the greatest thing that will ever happen to us if we know Christ. He wants us to have hope, not fear, not anxiety, not confusion. He wants us to rest. And that's what this passage is all about. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction you give us in it. And thank you that you talk to us about the day of the Lord. Teach us now, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a seat. So, three sources of hope and three reasons to hope as we consider the day of the Lord. By the way, the day of the Lord is Paul's favorite and most common expression for the second coming, uh, for the end of the world. And so we talk about the day of the Lord here. First of all, set your hope for the day of the Lord on truth. One of the reasons why so many Christians are anxious or confused or fearful is the same reason why the Thessalonians were confused and fearful and anxious. Because it was based on opinion and not truth. It was based on trying to figure things out, trying to calculate dates and seasons and times and events. And Paul says that's exactly what not to focus on when it comes to our hope in the day of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Now concerning times and season, brother, we have, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now why? Because Paul had already shared with them when he was with them the words of Christ, Matthew 24, for instance, where Jesus says his coming, no one knows, not even the Son in his human nature, but only the Father. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ends up speaking the same words that Paul uses here. It is not for you to know times and seasons fixed by the Father's authority. Now, can I get any more clear? Jesus said, it is not for you to know. It is not for any of us to know times or seasons of the end set by the Father's authority. Yet it was, it was exactly an obsession over times and seasons and circumstances and events that the false teachers were leading the Thessalonians to engage in. They were obsessing over apocalyptic frenzy, trying to discern what the date might be. And it's really nothing new. It's, it's occurred even in our day. Maybe you saw this several years ago. It's interesting, it's May 22nd, 2022. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, if you look at the guy's t-shirt. And look, the Bible guarantees it. Well, we're still here. And see, it's these kinds of things that create confusion. All throughout church history, there have been people who have given date after date after date after date after date. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen here. And they're all wrong. 
and Jesus and Paul, the Bible is clear. None of us will know or can know the date set by the Father's authority. Bad teaching on the day of the Lord upsets the faith of believers. Paul says the truth of God's word should do just the opposite for Christians. It ought to fill us with excitement, anticipation, and hope as we consider the day of the Lord. Then look at verse 2. Paul reminds them of what they already know. You are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, he's not saying that Christians won't be looking for the day of the Lord. As a matter of fact, look at verse 4. But you, in contrast to the world, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, he's not saying that Christians aren't going to be surprised because we're going to be able to discern looking at newspapers and the Bible when the day is. And therefore, since we know when the day is going to be, we're not going to be surprised. That's not what Paul's point is. Paul's point is, since you know Christ's return will come like a thief in the night, and you're walking with Jesus, walking in the light, you are always going to be ready. You are always going to be watchful. So it is not going to surprise you because you're always looking for it. That is the attitude that God's truth calls us to have. Stop looking for days, times, analyzing circumstances and events, and always walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And then none of us who know Jesus will be surprised. They're the ones, the world, the unbelievers are the ones that are going to be surprised. Now, if you want to know a sign concerning the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, Paul gives us one. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come. It's not going to be chaos. Jesus is going to come right at the moment the world is saying, look at all the peace. Look at all the security. See, we have sensationalized the coming of the Lord. Now, when he returns, there will be judgment and there will be all kinds of cessational things. But actually, the world is going to be saying peace and security right up to the moment of destruction. Now notice, again, I'm not being, I'm not digging in the knife here. Please hear me. I'm just trying to teach truth. It it, it doesn't say Christ's going to come back when there's peace and security. Then the church will be raptured and all hell will break loose for seven years. You think, well, Bob, how do you know it doesn't say that? Because it says they will be saying there is peace and security right up to the moment they're destroyed. Now, they won't be destroyed, annihilation. That word destruction means punished, means cut out from the presence of the Lord. So this text right here couldn't be more clear. It says they will be saying peace and security 
right up to the time where they experience the wrath of God for eternity. We need to make sure that God's truth and not people's opinions are what lead us and guide us when it comes to the day of the Lord. And let me tell you something. (laughs) These opinions about this particular view that that many hold to about the the day of the Lord, it doesn't create anxiety among non-Christians. It creates anxiety among Christians. This is one of the this is one area that creates more anxiety in Christians than almost any other area. And it's always related to the same thing. We're all afraid we've not believed enough, been faithful enough, done enough to be able to make it. Here's another slide that I want to show. We've all seen these kinds of preachers. This is a really old one to show that it's been around for a long time. I can remember walking around the campus of Penn State when I was not yet a Christian. And there were all these preachers. Hellfire, damnation, the end of the world, and you better repent. Let me tell you something. That message rarely saves anybody. But what it does is disrupts the faith of believers. Don't let end world predictions or obsessions distract you or cause you anxiety or fear. Keep your eyes on the truth and you'll be covered in peace. Set your hope for the day of the Lord on truth. Secondly, set your hope for the day of the Lord on identity. In order to calm down the Thessalonians who feared they weren't doing enough They were being told by the false teachers that they're going to miss out, that the reason why they're suffering is because they're bad Christians. Paul reminds them not of their performance, but of their identity, who they are in Christ. First of all, look at verse 1 and look at verse 4. Paul calls them brothers, brothers and sisters. He reminds us of our adoption as the beloved children of God. You see, the reason why Christians have peace with regard to the day of the Lord is not because we're living the Christian life so well. It's because we've been adopted as beloved sons and daughters into the household of God. If you focus on your performance, your assurance will always plummet whether it's the assurance of whether you really are a Christian, whether it's the assurance of whether God delights in you, or whether it's assurance related to some supposed rapture and will you be left behind. If you focus on your own performance of the Christian life, your assurance will always plummet. But if you focus on your identity in Christ your assurance will always skyrocket. I have people in my counseling office all the time filled with fear, doubt, anxiety, confusion. And I'll ask them, what are you focusing on? They say, well, what do you mean? I said, are you looking at how you're doing or are you looking at Christ? 
See, the author of the Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. If you're discouraged in your Christian life right now, I guarantee you it's because you're looking at your performance and not the performance of Christ on your behalf. And so Paul here, in order to comfort us regarding the return of the Lord, that it's something for us to look forward to and anticipate, points us to our identity in Christ. Look at verse 4. The identity is not just who we are, children of God, adopted children of God. It's also our identity is understanding who we're not. Verse 4, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Then he repeats himself in verse 5. If the Thessalonians or us miss who we're not in verse 4, he repeats it again in verse 5. We are not of the night or of the darkness, but don't miss what happens between 4 and 5. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers. Verse 5, we are not of the night or of the darkness. See what Paul did there? He identified with the Thessalonians. He's saying, if, if, if you think, as you look at me, Paul's saying, that I'm secure in Christ because of the coming of the Lord, he said, I'm just as confident that you're okay too. Why? Because Paul says, there's nothing about me that gives me hope and peace on the day of the Lord. Nothing at all. I have no more confidence in the day of the Lord as you do. Because my only confidence is my identity in Christ. And that's all your confidence is, needs to be as well. Do you get that? Get your eyes off of yourselves and onto Christ. And what's interesting is when we do that, we actually get changed. We're actually transformed. When you get your eyes on yourself, you're not going to change. When you get your eyes onto Jesus, He changes you. And then look at verse 9. Paul says more about our identity. For God has not destined us for wrath. That word means appointed. In other words, God's sovereignty here in grace is being absolutely exalted. Paul is saying... Everything depends on God's grace. Nothing depends upon you. So as you consider the day of the Lord, just keep hoping in grace. Peter says the same thing. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but he's destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Paul's reminding insecure, anxious believers like me, frankly, saying, you fear because you see your failures. And your failures are creating insecurity. But remember, Jesus died for every one of your failures. Jesus underwent God's wrath and anger. And he actually took it away from you. So what is there to fear about the day of the Lord 
when there's no wrath left for you because Jesus drank it to the last drop. Some time ago, the Associated Press ran a story about uh, 285 girls in Mumbai, India. You need to know something about India. Uh, Boys are much more valued than girls. Girls are often unwanted children. Girls are often aborted so that families can have boys. One of the ways this manifests itself is many girls in India are named Nakusa or Nakushi, which is Hindi, and guess what it means? Unwanted. How would you like to be called by everyone? Unwanted. How would you like to be reminded every day, multiple times throughout the day, you're not desired. You're not wanted. So the AP ran the story that this organization was going to have a renaming ceremony. And they were going to get certificates and all these girls dressed up in their best outfits, barrettes and and bows and all kinds of hats. And, And then there was a certificate that had the name that they were allowed to choose for themselves. And they chose names like beautiful or good or loved or strong. Can you imagine the change in their lives when they were no longer called by people on the street or their friends unwanted but started answering the call of beautiful or good or strong? Let me ask you something. What's your name? How do you see yourself? Unwanted? failure or do you see yourself through your identity in Christ destined for salvation no reason at all to fear the day of the Lord but to be looking with longing and hope for that day to come Set your hope for the day of the Lord on truth. Set your hope for the day of the Lord on identity. And then lastly, set your hope for the day of the Lord on wholeness. Paul, at the end of this passage, tells us how we are to live while we wait for the day of the Lord. And it's really interesting. What he basically reminds us of is we are to become on a daily basis who God says we already are. We're to be secure in our identity in Christ, and then we're to trust grace to enable us more and more to become who we already are declared to be. In other words, Paul closes this passage with a reminder that we as believers in Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith on a daily basis, become more and more whole. The world is becoming more and more disintegrated. Christians are to become more and more whole. 
So look at verse 6. So then, therefore, in light of your identity, let us not sleep as others do. By the way, this is a different word sleep than the word used for sleep that means death in chapter 4. Completely different word. Then he goes back to the word of verse 4 at the end of the passage where I said, whether we're awake or asleep, we'll be with the Lord, whether we're dead or alive. But that's not the word here. The word here is the word for spiritual lethargy, for spiritual apathy, for spiritual lukewarmness. So he says, in light of our identity, become more and more who God declares you to be, and don't sleep in spiritual lethargy or apathy or lukewarmness, but keep awake and be sober. Part of moving toward wholeness is that by grace we become more and more spiritually alive. And sober, though it in a sense means literally don't get drunk, that's really not what Paul's talking about. He's, he's actually using it as a metaphor. And being sober means to be moderate. And Paul's saying when it comes to the day of the Lord, be moderate. Don't make it your obsession. And don't allow certainly obsession with times and dates and events and circumstances to distract you, but be sensible when it comes to the day of the Lord. And then he actually tells us in verse 8 what a sober life looks like. Look at verse 8. Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You want to know what Paul means when he says, live a sober life. That's how you move toward wholeness in this life by grace. To live a sober life is to live, first of all, by faith. What does that mean? That means fix your eyes on Jesus over and over and over and over. It means get your eyes off of yourself, onto Jesus, off your performance, onto his performance, and the more we look to Christ, it's counterintuitive, the more we're changed. The more you look at yourself and your behavior, the less you're going to be changed. Counterintuitive. But the more you look to Jesus and His work on your behalf, the more you're going to be changed supernaturally. So be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith. You want to live a sober life, you want to move toward wholeness, then keep living by faith. And then it says, also the breastplate of love. As we love one another as Christians. Remember Jesus said, you know we're Christians by your view of the end times? Is that what he said? No, he says, they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. As we live a life of love, we move toward wholeness. See, no one was ever more whole than Jesus. And no one ever loved like Jesus loved. Moving toward wholeness means moving more and more toward love, especially for the church, for the people of God, for the body of Christ. And then he says, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What protects our minds as sometimes we become anxious and insecure about the day of the Lord is hope, the expectation of the grace that is to be brought to us. And then look what he says in verse 11. To sum it all up, Paul says, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are doing. Why? Because life is hard. Because we are broken. Because we do blow it in the Christian life. 
Because the fact is, all of us have thought at some point, I guarantee you, all of us have thought, maybe I'll be left behind. Maybe I've just not lived well enough. Maybe I just haven't believed deeply enough. (laughs) Between the summers of my sophomore and junior year at Penn State, I was a brand new Christian. And for a decade of my life, I worked road construction uh, during the summer. And I was tired. I was filthy. I was brand new in the Lord. I was a little stressed out. I was trying to figure things out. And, uh, and I was exposed to this, not left behind. I was exposed to a much older guy from 60 years ago named Hal Lindsey who wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which was basically left behind before left behind was left behind. And I was thinking about all this stuff, and, uh, and I thought, what if, what, if I, what if I do get left behind? What? And I was in the shower washing off all the dirt and thinking, and right when I said, what if I get left behind, all the lights went out. <laughs> now, I'm glad you're laughing, but at the time, it was not funny. I thought, oh, no, it happened. It happened. Christ has come back, and I've been left. So I, I, I dried off and got out of the shower and I looked around the houses. All the lights were off. There was no power. The power was completely out. Everywhere I looked, I said, it really has happened. I looked around, see if I find any people. I couldn't find any people outside. And I started calling Christians. We'd have cell phones. I used, you know, the old dial phone. I was, nobody was answering. It's happened. I finally got a hold of one, and it was great. I thought, well, what if he's been left behind too? (laughs) The point is, we can laugh now, but for some of us, that's pretty close to home, isn't it? It was close to home for the Thessalonians. And Paul said, you, you are going about this all wrong. So stop focusing on opinions and stick to the truth of God's word. Stop looking at your performance as the indicator of whether or not Jesus is going to take you home and start focusing on your identity in Christ. And don't focus on your brokenness. Focus on the wholeness that is to be yours on the day of the Lord. And by grace, seek to become in your daily life who God has already declared you to be and move toward wholeness. And then, to top it off, Encourage every Christian around you with these words. They may really need it. Let's pray. Father, I remember when I really needed encouragement and I didn't have it. Because everybody around me was just as anxious. Lord, forgive us for turning what will be For those in Christ, the happiest day ever. And we've turned it into a time of fear or anxiety or insecurity. 
So, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's anxious about this, well, first of all, Lord, if, if they don't know you, then, then open up their eyes to see, and they transfer their hope and trust from themselves to you. But, Father, for those who already know you, grant that we would follow the truth, boast in our identity in Christ, and trust that you'll not only make us whole one day, but you'll even start doing it now. And God, we pray for the world, for the world who doesn't know you. It will be a terrible day. But Father, remind us that you don't call us to talk to non-Christians about the end of the world. You, you, you call us to talk to them about Jesus and the resurrection and his death and our sin and our need. So Lord, work in us more grace that we would become more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's all stand here with benediction. Also, remember, if you've not filled out a ballot, please do that. That's very, very important. Uh, you know, that's, that's the leadership of our church that we're talking about here. Uh, receive the benediction, the hope that gives you hope for the day of the Lord. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.